Hey, it's Zoe. Just a quick one. In December, we walk our talk and I take some time off recording to be with my family and the girls and recharge before next year. So I've re-released for you the most popular episodes of the past six months. These were the episodes that you loved, you shared with your friends, you emailed me about, you DM'd me about, you told me helped you so, so, so much. So I am re-releasing them. Even if you've listened before, listen again, because I know when I re-listen to podcasts, I hear something different every time. So here it is. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind Podcast. It is me, your host, Zoe. I am so happy that you are here. This week, we have a really special guest for you. It is my friend, psychotherapist and author, Anna Martha. She is back on the podcast. It is her fourth time, which I think makes her the most booked guest on the podcast. And it's not surprising. I absolutely love her. I love her words. I love her warmth. And I feel so lucky to call her her friend. We talk about so much in this episode. It would be impossible for me to sum it up for you, but I know that you are going to love it. Here it is. Thanks to this week's sponsor, Belkin. My girls love Belkin's Soundform headphones for their screen or music time. They can be with or without a wire. They are incredible quality and really durable, which given how much they get dropped and thrown about is very important. They're super soft and comfy for the girls to wear. They've got a long-lasting battery life. And my seven-year-old tells me they're cool, probably because they come with stickers that she decorated hers with. So there you go. What more do we need than that? And for us parents, the kids' range is also specially engineered to protect their hearing with a maximum volume limit. I want you to try these amazing headphones for yourself. So visit belkin.com forward slash UK. Use the code MOTHERKIND15 for 15% off their entire audio range. I think these gorgeous headphones would make a brilliant Christmas present. So that's motherkind15 on belkin.com forward slash UK. Offer is valid to the end of January 31st and is for the UK only. Anna, well, I think I need to give you some sort of branded mug or certificate because you are now officially the most booked guest on Motherkind. This is your fourth appearance and no one else has even come close. So I'll be sending you some sort of recognition in the post. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'd love a mug. But also you were the very first podcast that I ever guested on ever. And I remember coming to your house in London and feeling extra nervous and wondering how it would go. And we just have these conversations, don't we? Like even before we click record. I remember that day. It was amazing. And yeah, it's just incredible thinking back to how much you have done and achieved and, you know, fourth book coming out soon. It's absolutely incredible. The millions of mothers that you've helped with your words and thoughts. Your millions. That's a big thought. I wonder. I wonder. It is. (laughs) Who knows? It's just a real privilege, I think, to be able to put it out there. I talk about all of these things so much because I'm having to talk to myself about them all the time. Overwhelm and burnout and anxiety and guilt. And it's helpful talking about it all the time because I'm constantly needing reminding myself in this world that we live in. We teach what we most need to learn, right? (laughs) So true. It's very, very true. And last time you were on, which was almost a year to the day, 2nd of June, we're recording this on the 20th. That episode, you were talking about your very humbling experience of burnout. And so I'm wondering a year on, how are you feeling now? And what did that experience, now you've got that perspective on it, different perspective, I imagine. How has it changed how you're living today? 
it's changed my whole life. Going through that experience of burnout where I literally felt like my skin had been removed and my nerves were just exposed to the world. I remember my husband asking me what I wanted for dinner because I felt literally quite incapable of cooking. It's incredibly humbling as someone who does a lot of things and is very proactive and productive. And I remember the question of, you know, what do you want for dinner was just too much to bear. It would send me into this feeling of panic. It was so humbling. It really, really stripped me back and I had to rebuild. I never realised it would take so long. I thought burnout would just need me to slow down a bit, to recoup, to get up and carry on. But I think that's what I'd done for years and years and years is crashed, picked myself up and carried on. And I think what happens when we don't notice the flags or we just kind of push through them and we scrape ourselves back together the best we can and we move on. We're not making the changes that need to be made. And I felt like every little crash I had was messier and messier. And that burnout was a culmination of the fact that I never really made any changes as a result of those little crashes. And often they would just be on a Sunday afternoon. I would get this overwhelming feeling of, I can't do this. This is all just too much. How can I do another week? And it all just felt too much. And I would literally have moments just crying on the kitchen floor. And then what would I do? I'd get up and carry on. It would be Monday again and we'd start all over again. And I think so many people can relate to having those times, but they're saying something to us. And I was forced to listen. And I have a deep respect for my limits now. And I actually almost feel fearful of really pushing through them. Like when I know that I'm burning the candle at both ends, I will literally apologize to myself. I'm like, I'm so sorry. This is only going to go on for a little bit of time because sometimes we have to. Sometimes life circumstances do mean we have to push on for a little bit longer than perhaps we know we should be. So I have a real reverence, I think, for limits and boundaries and rest. So you talk about, you know, going through those burnouts before, but not actually making that shift, making those changes. What are those changes? Is it that you're way more boundary? Is it that you're resting more? What practically is it that's changed? Accepting support, asking for help, practical things that I think I had just felt like were my job that I had to prove that I could do it all. I do time blocking in my diary and it's changed my life and I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. This is one massive thing that I keep telling people about. So I think I've been doing it for about the last year. But I started adding everything was on this to-do list all my work requests that came in, things I had to write, just went on this list that was quite long. And every day I'd look at this list and I'd feel like, I can't do all that today. But I pressure myself to get as much done as possible. And at the end of the day, I'd never feel like I'd touch the surface of it. So I remember one day getting this job coming, I think it was to record something. And I just looked at my diary and I thought, right, there's all this space in my diary. I've got just a work day blocked out. But what does that actually mean? So I started putting every little job that came my way, every little thing, even just admin jobs that take longer than 10 minutes, I started putting them in as events. And it was incredible. I didn't even know that this was actually a thing. It's called time blocking. I'm sure there's loads of like articles and stuff on it now. But it means that I get to the end of the day and I know that I've got a sense of accomplishment. I've done what I need to do for that day. When something comes in, I allocate it a little bit of time somewhere. And I think tomorrow's taking care of itself. I don't need to worry about that work. There is no to-do list anymore. I don't really have one. And that is incredible. So it's stuff like that, these little kind of tweaks, this switching off my phone. Well, not literally. I don't even know who does that anymore. But 
deciding that I'm not going on social media after a certain time. I don't or, know if I'd know how to turn off my phone. <laughs> how would we turn it back on again? What if it doesn't come back on? It rarely ever runs out of battery enough for me to have to turn it back on again. But I've got this app called OneSec. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it basically just makes you take a breath before you go on whatever app you attach it to. So I've got it on Instagram and I've got it on my email. So it just takes that impulsivity out of it because you have to take this breath. It makes you wait for about seven seconds. And then it says, do you still want to proceed? And I'm like, like, I don't even know why I was on here. I was just on here to add milk to the shopping list. So it's things like that. It's just finding ways to ring fence the stuff that really matters. And you get out the habit. Phone addiction is massive for me. I started realizing that I would take my phone upstairs for bed and bath and then be like halfway through bath time and then the next thing I find myself on the landing checking Instagram I'm like what am I doing it's literally I wake up I'm like what what I'm bathing the kids the kids are in the bath I'm meant to be with them so then I was like I'll just leave my phone downstairs oh my god bath times are easier quicker more fun I'm present I was like oh my god this is mental and I realized my willpower over such an addictive force is not strong enough. I have to physically, like you're doing with that app, there's loads of ways, but I physically have to take that temptation out of my way. Absolutely. And it's those sobering moments where we're suddenly called into like this consciousness of what am I doing? I'm actually going against my deep values here that my being with my children is meaningful to me, yet they're there saying, mommy, mommy, what the heck am I doing? something I don't even know what I'm flipping doing. And I think as soon as we allow ourselves that moment of consciousness, we have the choice to make decisions. And I'm just even sometimes questioning, what what am I doing? Do I want to be doing this? And recognizing that our brains have to process everything that we come across. So when we're devouring, you know, we think we're resting, we're lying there, scrolling, reading articles of things that don't actually really interest us. Our brains have to trudge through that like a heavy meal. That takes energy. We're asking our brains to process all this stuff. We don't just take in that data and nothing happens to it. That goes somewhere. That has to get filed away. Our brains have to work out whether we need to know that, whether we need to remember it. There's a lot of ways that we're spending our energy. We don't even realize it because that focus is a commodity and someone's paying for it somewhere. It's so true. And our brains are just not designed to consume in the way that we're consuming so it's no wonder we feel like you hear so many mums don't you I'm sure you hear this as well just say I just feel completely overwhelmed with the advice and the what the other day I picked up Instagram and I've curated my feed right like I don't have people on there but I just felt like I was being shouted at the whole time (laughs) and I was like I said to put this away I was like and I say this once all the time like if you're feeling like you can't hear your own voice do a social media or content consumption purge. Don't do it for seven days and you will start to hear your own voice again and it works every time. Things like that just make a massive difference. And I don't think we realize quite how big a difference they can make on our energy levels and our sense of overwhelm until we make a decision just to experiment. If you don't believe it, just experiment. Just try and see what happens. And these things all add up. They really do. It's the little things. I think we tend to think one big change is going to sort all this out. And that is just not my experience at all. It's those tiny little 1% that actually stack up that make the difference. So you just chip away, isn't it? That it's never just one big, shiny solution, unfortunately. 
Because I think we often live with this sense that for me, it really stirs like in the core of my stomach, this sense of like dissonance. It's called cognitive dissonance. It's the fact that we're acting against our own values because we're being pulled. It's incredibly powerful. We're being told what matters. Our focus, as Johan Hari says, you know, it is a commodity. Someone is paying for it somewhere. It's a very, very powerful force to be reckoned with. So we're going to be weak to it because it's bigger than we are. But all of these things, they all add up. And alcohol's another one, isn't it? Because, you know, I've, I'm 10 years now alcohol this year. Wow. And I remember reading at the very beginning when I first stumbled across you before we even first met. And you were one of the few people I knew that weren't drinking. And it was totally intriguing to me. And I, I started reading stuff. Alcohol has impacted my life in ways that I don't feel is my story to tell at this point. So I don't really open up about it. But I will say that alcohol has deeply, deeply impacted my life, not personally, but not necessarily my own relationship with it. It's never been something that I've questioned for many, many years. Went to university, drank the usual, probably drank too much at certain points. Everyone has a story. But over recent years, I've wanted to learn, really learn, I think because I love neuroscience, like you, I've sometimes fantasized about doing like a neuroscience PhD. Like I've got time for that right now. My husband's always like, Anna, thank you. No, thank you. Please stop going down that road. Just bank that one, put it away, put it on a shelf. (laughs) That is not for now, but I love reading neuroscience and listening to neuroscience. And I started being really interested in alcohol and neuroscience. And I started learning. I've listened to Naked Mind, read the William Porter book on alcohol explained. And I started thinking, oh my gosh, I never knew all this time over the last few years, I'm doing things to help me soothe myself so that I can soothe my kids, to calm myself so that I can anchor them a little better. You know, the deep breathing, the legs up the wall, all of these tips and tools that I've been implementing in my life. Yeah, I've been drinking every day, a and a glass of wine, because that's fine, right? Everyone says that's fine. And directly working against everything that I'm trying to do for myself, totally unknowingly. And I now feel really annoyed that we're so uninformed. But again, a bit like with our attention, our focus, there's too much money in this for us to know the truth. I'm so grateful the people that are putting it out there. So for me, it's really understanding the science of alcohol on the nervous system and recognizing that, wow, I'm really doing something that's working against something that's really, really important to me in my life, my parenting. I think you're right. For so long, alcohol has been marketed from others. And I think when you understand that and you understand that that is on purpose, we are a target market for alcohol companies. They've created the whole mummy needs wine narrative that came from companies trying to profit from us. I think when you understand that, it's not about everyone stopping drinking at all, but it is about just becoming more aware of it and more conscious of it. And then I think it becomes more of a choice as opposed to just like, everyone's doing this and this is what I need. But I wonder if that contributed to my burnout because through the pandemic, alcohol was a tool that I think many people lent on. It was a treat at the end of the day for making it through another day of home learning. It was a way to take the edge off the feelings that you were just faced with every time you turn the TV on. And I recognized it was depressing my nervous system. I know now if I've had a glass of wine, the next day I'm more irritable. I'm more reactive. And I've got this Garmin watch. My husband got one when he was uh, training for the marathon, you know, and it gives you stats and data. And I wish I didn't love it so much, but I absolutely love it. And he showed me his sleep 
and I had to get one, Zoe. I was just so intrigued by all of this. Honestly, when I've had wine, no matter how well I believe I have slept, it shows my body has been in a state of stress most of the night, sometimes all of the night. And the little blue lines that show rest. If I've had something to drink some nights, there will be none of it. So I'm waking up thinking I've slept okay, but I have not. The quality has been awful. So if I went for years like that, no wonder I was feeling even more frazzled. It's bonkers, isn't it? It's essentially a poison to our body. So your body is in that stress state trying to process it. What are your boundaries with alcohol? I think I heard you say that it's nothing in the week and then a little bit of the weekends. Is that the boundary? So even when I drink, I feel like I'm now at a place when I drink, I feel like I'm doing something bad to myself. Oh, that's where I got to. And then I stopped. Yeah. And I think it's just because of the knowledge that I have, the scientific knowledge. Once you know something, I think it's my therapist or maybe it's my mum. Sometimes they feel like similar roles. Says, once you know something, you can't unknow it. I have an awareness now that I didn't have before. And then I'm starting thinking, do I, do I really want to? I didn't drink on Saturday night and I had a wonderful Sunday morning. I actually ended up waking up at five because the birds woke me up. And I did a little bit of a writing project I'm loving at the minute. And then I did a little workout. And I thought if I had a glass of wine last night, I wouldn't have done any of that. I would have been like, oh, just within birds. So my boundary now is that I drink one to two times a week. But even then, yeah, I always feel a sense of regret. One of the big breakthroughs for me is when I realized I was having a better time. I know a lot of people are like, this sounds bonkers, but I genuinely have a better time now socializing going to a party going to a wedding whatever it is sober because you have to find a confidence alcohol papered over my confidence cracks really well but when I took it away I had to learn to find those confidence tools that I have so now I don't need a crutch like I can walk into any situation sober as I have done for like 10 years I can't tell you the confidence that's given me I'll dance all night now sober So why would I add this thing into my life? I just wouldn't. Sober dancing. Dancing without a glass of wine or whatever at a wedding. Now that's something I've not yet experienced. I tell you, you get used to it. First couple, it's like, oh, this is really awkward. And what do I do with my hands? What am I doing with my hands? You're like, this is so weird. But so many of them. (laughs) So many hands, so many limbs. (laughs) And then suddenly you just, you have to find a confidence that's not a sticking plaster. And then it impacts every area of your life. It's amazing. Because if you can dance sober at a wedding, and also in that is the recognition that no one actually really cares. And that's really liberating. I am loving pushing into that recognition. That's been another one over the last couple of years, is that I have to let go of that worry about what other people think if I'm not going to find myself in burnout again. It accelerated my people-pleasing recovery. Because we can't. That's another weight. That's another weight we carry is fear of what other people think. And my son, who I often kind of say he struggles with emotional regulation, which means he can have these big screaming, flailing, protracted, lengthy meltdowns that they draw attention. And the me of a few years ago would have felt absolutely, that would have been excruciating for people to be looking at me for any reason, you know, that might come with judgment. So I found a whole new freedom against worrying about what other people think. Because I will sit on a car park. The other day, we had to pull the car over because it wasn't safe to drive. He was having a meltdown. It just wasn't safe to drive. We pulled the car over into a pub uh, car park. 
and people were going from their cars. It was lunchtime into it was Sunday lunchtime. It was prime pub lunchtime. People were going from their cars into the pub and I was sat on the gravel floor in the car park with my son and he was screaming and shouting and flailing and I was just holding him. And I thought, I don't care what they think because if they think anything, they, they don't get this. They don't understand. And it's just so liberating because actually you realize that people have read like what a single line of your story in those moments. They've just seen what they've seen. And that's just a tiny part of the massive picture that you know and people who care about you know you know about. And yeah, I just don't give my power away in the same way anymore as much, <laughs> of course. That's true confidence, isn't it? That's true this is what is the most important thing in my world right now is regulating and calming and supporting my son who's having a really hard time. And maybe what people care about could be second or third on the list. I don't know. But the top one is that. And I think when you can get to that, yeah, that true confidence in what is important to you and then doing it anyway and being able to hold the, not everyone's going to get that and that's okay. It's the same with drinking. The moment you step outside something that's the not people do judge. But the moment you're like, this feels so right to me, judge away. Judge away. You don't know me. You don't know my story. It doesn't matter. It's subjective opinion. It's not fact. And it, I will choose to who I let speak into my life and who has the power. More of the time, as I always say, more of the time, not all of the time. But I do think that also came from burnout because the recognition of the heavy weight of fear that we carry that really inhibits us, the boundaries that we place, we worry about what people think, we worry about offending people, and we put that as more of a priority to protect other people than to protect ourselves, our resources, our families, the things that are actually most important to us. That's a heavy weight to keep carrying and dragging around you're so right and you talk about all of this so incredibly in the new book which is out in august raising a happier mother because you know for 20 30 years parenting has been like these are the scripts <laughs> this is how what to do with your child and i remember when i first became a mum seven years ago and I was reading those parenting books and I threw them all away because I thought this is insane because none of them are talking to how I am as the parent. How can we set a boundary with our child or regulate our child if we have no idea how to regulate ourselves? To me, it seemed like double Dutch, double Dutch. I was like, this is insane. That's amazing that you had that recognition because I just had all the books and I just felt like I was failing because in the moment when it was all kicking off, all I wanted to do was shout and scream and run out the door. So I felt like I was failing. I love the fact that you had that, that you looked into those books and you thought, there's something missing here. I didn't. I think because I've been in therapy a long time, I'd been learning about nervous system regulation. Like I'd been learning all that stuff. And then I just assumed that when I became a parent, it would reference all that and how that impacts then what you're able to do with your kids. And none of it did. And that's partly why I started the podcast. I was like, this is actually insane. I think we've just been sold. And you're so right, because then what it creates is guilt and shame and a sense of failure when it doesn't work. No, because I'm not in that moment when I'm actually myself also in fight and flight, trying to manage my child who's in fight or flight. I'm not there thinking, wait a minute, what's that book second from the left on the top shelf? What's that script that I read two months ago? I'm in fight or flight. I'm in stress. You know, my cognitive, thoughtful brains logged offline long ago. So I thought I need to write a book that you read before the other parenting books 
which essentially helps us mother ourselves and allow ourselves to be mothered by others so that we're not what I realized I was doing was living in that place of fight or flight essentially every day parenting felt like I was going into some kind of battle whereas now I'll do things before the kids even get up that will try and put my nervous system in a place that is ready and okay and safe whole different approach for me it is a completely different approach because I think so much of the conversation, I think we've been derailed a little bit actually around self-care for mums. And so many people are like, that's ridiculous. It's privilege and it's inaccessible. It costs too much. And I think that conversation really did a disservice to arguably people like you and I who are trying to say, no, it's not about getting your hair done and your nails done. We're not talking about that. We're talking about if you're okay, it's so much easier to parent. It makes a really impossible job just difficult. You're more able to be the parent that you want to be, the mother that you want to be. And I do feel like that that self-care conversation did us a bit of a disservice. Yeah, it did become a little bit cheesy, didn't it, about bath bombs. And then you kind of worried about even saying it because the eye rolls would come before people even reached the essence of what you were trying to say. I remember saying to my therapist, it's like my parenting relies on me going for a walk. I think that was in the pandemic just as I was really addressing that burnout. And she said, it does. It doesn't have to be the walk. The boundaries that you're setting around phone use, the recognition that you're taking in all that information and it's exhausting you. So you're going to have to try and find ways to stop. The letting other people, when they ask you how you are, just letting them be a friend to you. The deep breath that you take in the car on the way to the pickup. You know, how are you feeding yourself? Because we we know this, you cannot pour from an empty cup. Another thing that we know is true, but we say it all the time. So no one actually really listens. So just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I often think of pilots. If they were flying that plane depleted, having not slept, having eaten Haribo for breakfast, would we want to board that flight? If they just said, no, I don't need a co-pilot. I'm fine. Thank you. I can do this on my own. It wouldn't be safe. And we wouldn't want to get on that flight. We want the pilot to be well rested and have good nutrition so that they've got energy and focus and to accept support because we don't want it all just to hang literally in the balance on that one person. We need backup. Where does it come from, do you think? Is it societal? Is it like us growing up? You know, our generations, we've grown up in the 80s, which was very a time of individualism. It was a time of productivity and success. And do you think it's that? Or do you think it's something more psychological that's driving us to want to just go, go, be everything, do it all? Or is it both? I think it's all of these things, isn't it? I love the things. This is what I do like social media for, these little squares with words that go floating around. And there was one about how the demand on our attention, the things, the roles that we're playing have increased, but our capacity hasn't over the years. You know, my mum will say to me, Anna, you mums have so much more to deal with, but also you're more anxious because you have so much more knowledge. You know, knowledge is power, but we're overwhelmed with it. I know about diseases that I wouldn't have known ever in my life had I not read about them. And one person going through this rare illness and then suddenly it's just another thing that someone in my family that I love could die of. So I think there's all of that. But yeah, I think the Industrial Revolution and the way that family setups were changed and we were put into these roles and it's just become so much more blurred now because of the cost of living and mums are working and they're ju- a lot more and they're juggling and but yet still expecting ourselves to be fulfilling 
you know, to be being calm and patient, but we're frazzled. Of course we're frazzled. And yeah, I mean, it's just so many different aspects, but I think there are lots of things about our society that people are trying to change. It's going to take a while, but what we can change is just keep plodding away at amending the expectations that we place upon ourselves, the perfectionism, the people-pleasing, the overconsumption. These are things that we can, if we want to, address. That is self-care. Boundaries, self-care. Looking at a diary before you say yes to another thing, self-care is free. A lot of these things just take energy, intentionality. I find it really helpful. I've had so many amazing guests on podcasts who've helped me do this, like understand myself in a wider context, because then it just gives me so much compassion for myself. Like the moment I understand our generation know more than ever before about the importance of parenting, especially those first five years, like that was never a thing. We didn't understand about brain development and the importance of it, but the structures to support us actually do what we want to do about that haven't changed haven't come into place yet so we're just in this pressure cooker and I think me really understanding that perfect storm and the pressure cooker that I'm in and our generation in has been a game changer for me because it gives me so much compassion I'm like ah, I get it that's why like it's not me you talk about that it's not a me thing it's a thing like it's a thing it's a thing and I think the more we know about ideal ways to parent, ideal ways to respond and ideal ways to nurture confidence and self-esteem and all of these things. We then set a bar that we need to do that all the time and that we should do that all the time. Like, I think we need to inject the humanness back into, into these conversations. And that's what the book does. It's really looking at the fantasy version of our motherhood that we have in our minds, how it is like that, why it's like that, both through our upbringing and the culture and just narratives that have been affirmed throughout our lives. Perhaps we've people pleasing in motherhood that's a heavy thing for some people because it if we please others people are pleased with us so many of these things actually get affirmed along the way and they help us be more successful and more likable but actually at what cost and do we need to be successful in everything and liked by everyone and what weight is that upon our shoulders and just injecting some humanness back into our version of motherhood you're so right sometimes people ask me like what's your favorite thing about having a podcast and speaking to all these experts. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't expect me to say, which is that my favorite thing is that every single, from like Dr. Becky to Dr. Shafali to Gabble, like they have all said some version of, I completely messed it up and I mess it up most days. And that is genuinely my favorite thing about speaking to them because I'm like, Ah, so Dr. Shafali, like massive, arguably the biggest of our time parenting coach, is essentially saying that she too gets it wrong all the time, doesn't know what she's doing, feels like she's failing. I think people feel like that about about you, Anna, when you say, I get it wrong, I don't know what I'm doing, because it's just completely freeing and validating that we do live in this new world of parenting content that just didn't exist 15 years ago, 20 years ago, didn't exist it's so new. And I love that it's like, just remember, take what's helpful, but remember, do not use it as another stick for yourself. Absolutely. And we recognize that sometimes we're not getting things right in ways that a generation or two ago, they wouldn't have even questioned because they wouldn't have known that there was a right and a wrong. They were just getting on with it. So the pressure is absolutely immense. And there's a statistic somewhere, I can't remember if it was Winnicott, it was one of these amazing kind of child development psychologists. And, and he said, I think it was, you have to get, get it right. Like, was it 
Oh, is it 40 or 60% of the time? Anyway, it's 30%. 30%. Well, that's even better, Zoe. That's even better. What I like about that is that it isn't 100. It's not even close to 100. If I'm a perfect parent, what does that do to my kids when they're having to walk and live and navigate a very messy and perfect world? That I help them in no way. I help them in no way. The repair is all about the trying. It's all about the equipping ourselves and nurturing ourselves, accepting the messy imperfectness of life that wouldn't have even been questioned a few years ago because they didn't know quite what good and perfect looked like. It's actually insane how much parental standards have risen. It's an incredible thing, right? Don't get me wrong. It's an incredible thing that we don't hit our children anymore. But 30 years ago, that was completely standard. If you think about that, how different it is today, no wonder we're feeling the pressure. Someone said to me, I think it might have been Julia Samuel. You know her, don't you? She's just gorgeous. She said, parenting was never a verb in my generation. You were a parent and you just, you know, controlled your kids. I'm not saying this was right, by the way. It's so good where we are. But I think it's so powerful to recognize how different it is for us, for our generation. Even in my nearly nine years of parenting, I look back and think about some of the approaches that I took on discipline and naughty steps and all that, because that's what I was told. This is good. This is the way you get your kids to do what you want them to do. Even in those few years, you know, I look back and I could very easily feel ashamed at how I approached stuff. Actually, I didn't know then. I know different stuff now. We know different stuff. We do different stuff. But then we do have to be careful if we're lumping the guilt and the shame on top of that. That just adds to a lot. And that really contributes to burnout, I think, because it's too much. It's too heavy. Tell me about guilt, because I know that you really think about it a lot and you scratch away at the surface of guilt. And why is it so prevalent? And it's gendered. It is gendered. The studies show that. Mum guilt, what's husband guilt? It's not even a term that we're okay with. Yeah, exactly. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. (laughs) Yeah, I think guilt, oh, I don't even feel guilty as much as I used to. And I think what I mean by that is I feel guilt, but I let it serve its purpose. It's there to prompt me. I let it prompt me and then I flip and let it go. Because if we don't let guilt go and if we don't observe it and we don't move through the process, which I actually created, I don't know if I've spoken to you about this before at all, to use but all feelings of guilt that arise because I was like, there's got to be a way. This is just, there's guilt upon guilt upon guilt. And it was in the pandemic and I sat at my desk one day in a rare moment of work and I felt even more layers of guilt because of home learning and just everything that added to parenting at that point. So I made up this tool and it's called the ACT tool, A-C-T. And it helps you move through guilt. It helps you feel guilt deal with it and then let it go so it doesn't linger. And when it lingers, it turns into shame, doesn't it? That's when we start going from, oh, I did something that wasn't really ideal to I'm a failure, I'm not enough, I don't deserve my kids, I don't deserve good things. And we move away from those self-caring, nurturing things because inherently underneath it all, we just don't feel deserving. We feel like we need to punish ourselves because that guilt's just lingered and landslid into shame. So the act all very simply is A is address, just label it. I feel guilty for shouting at my kids this morning. Okay. Labeled it. C, compassion. And it's that sense that we need compassion to start disrupting shame. Compassion is like the antidote to shame. You can't feel that same shame when you experience compassion. So how can we add some compassion into that? So I might say, right, shout at the kids this morning, feel really guilty and ashamed about that. 
what compassion can I give myself? What would a friend say? What would I say to someone that I loved? You've got a lot on your plate. You're exhausted. You had a rough night. It's not about taking responsibility away. It's just about recognizing that you're a fallible human being with limited resources, just acknowledging that. So I might, yeah, I might say you're exhausted, had a rough night. You've got a lot on your plate. It was stressful. And as you often say, we often say it's hard because it was flipping hard. That's why it was hard. It was stressful. So then the T is the tweak. So if guilt is there to prompt us, what in that situation is it prompting me to do? I might think, right, I'm done in. I'm going to let that guilt prompt me to prioritize going for a walk because that's something that I never feel the same when I get back from a walk than I do when I've left. It just helps me. Or it might be I'm going to offload to a friend or I'm going to just do some breathing to help my body get out of that fight or flight stress response. If it's going to prompt you, what is it prompting you to do? So I move through those steps and I don't feel guilt as much. I still feel guilt, but it just doesn't stay with me in the same way that then finds you punishing yourself because that's what we do. If we believe we've done something wrong, we don't feel like we're deserving of that support, of that time, of that care, of that prioritizing the things that we need or even acknowledging our needs. So that's where I'm at with guilt. It's so hard as well when we feel guilty. See, I notice that so much of the guilt that I experience comes from me absorbing like other people's standards for what a mother is. Like I feel guilty for working sometimes. You know, my little three-year-old could be at home with me all day. She doesn't need to be at school. She's at nursery. So I should, and sometimes I can feel like a pang, of, not as much anymore, but like a pang of guilt about that. And I'm like, hang on a minute, where did I get the idea? It's not my idea that a good mother has a child and is with them 24 hours. That's not my idea. Where's that from? Okay. Well, my mum did do that. She didn't work for 18 years. Okay. That has something to do with it. Oh, and I've basically been absorbed since I was born. You know, we've been indoctrinated with these messages. I find that really, really helpful. It's like, so that's the compassion there is that it's not surprising you have that narrative when you've grown up with that narrative and it's coming at you from all directions. And, you know, what's the tweak there is, is as you've just said, to think, is that even in line with what I want? Am I actually okay? How can I act on the back of this and let it go? It's in line with my values to work. Like I want to be independent. I want to put something out in the world of purpose. I like my girls seeing me do that. Do you know what I mean? It's in my values. So this guilt is not coming from me. It's just so there, isn't it? That guilt is bubbling under the surface, just waiting. I know. But in that moment, you've done that whole three steps. You've moved through it. And at the end, the tweak is sometimes recognizing that it's unjustified guilt. It's not yours to carry and you're going to put it down. And this is where it's so good to observe the guilt. Otherwise, you just let that sit there. And you might then even like subconsciously, maybe some work comes your way and you're like, oh, you take it in bad faith because it just doesn't, oh, it's jarring with the guilt that you feel and it starts shaping the decisions that you make. And then maybe you feel bad for working. So you kind of overcompensate with the girls and then you exhaust yourself because you're trying to prove that, you know, working isn't impacting your resources or, or whatever it is, is that when we don't address it it just infiltrates things and we're less authentic and we lose ourselves a little bit a high cost it is a high cost I also notice that the more I try and push something away the sort of bigger it seems to get so the more that I just welcome something like you're talking about that that first day you know that awareness that acceptance it's so powerful but you see so many of us have been taught the opposite 
if you ignore something, ignore the hard stuff, ignore a bad feeling and it will just go away. And it's such bad advice that because it's just the opposite is true. And if we think about maybe people have specific parents in mind who took that approach, you know, sweep under the carpet, doesn't matter. Don't think about it. Think happy thoughts, positive mental attitude. Really, how has that actually served them and how did it serve us, really? if we think about it. And I think we can become fearful of our own feelings. What will happen if I put my phone down? What will happen if I allow myself to be bored or just to think? What feelings might arise? And I think we fear that if we start crying or grieving over something, we might never stop. And if we start questioning that thing that happened to us, then we'll never get the answers and it will open Pandora's box. And I think the more we just allow feelings to be and move through the, observe that guilt, just let it do its thing. Emotions move through us. And then when we block them, they it's like putting things under the carpet. It just gets really lumpy and we're more likely to trip over it. The elephants in the rooms of our lives, they're big. We just need to acknowledge them, to say hi to them. And then we learn to trust that these things move through us. And they do. They really do. I've watched many life-changing TED Talks, but one of them, which I'm sure you've watched as well, is with Jill Bolte-Taylor. She's a brain scientist who had a stroke and she was observing the part of her brain shutting down. Have you heard this TED Talk? It's remarkable. Essentially, what she discovers is that it takes 90 seconds for a feeling to process through your body. What makes it last longer is the narratives that we put around it. But the pure feeling, anger, fear, joy, it very quickly processes through. And when I learned that, I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. I can feel something for 90 seconds. I can do that. We can, but we're functioning in a, in a culture that says we don't need to. Why? Why feel that for 90 seconds? You don't have to feel that for 90 seconds. Play this, take your mind off it. Stick your headphones in your ears and listen to this. Don't, you don't have to, sadness, you don't have to feel that. Drink this, do that, strive for that. And again, it's our retention. We need to be taking it back for ourselves, putting it where we want it to go. Just learning to trust that emotions rise and they fall like waves we get scared of them we fear that we might drown in them and it can feel like that for a moment sometimes but we've made it this far i've been through all sorts and felt all sorts and we're here chatting to each other on the screen functioning exactly through the screen another amazing conversation anna i just love connecting with you and and i've asked you this question three times before so and i can't remember your other answers so it absolutely doesn't matter whether you say the same thing again. But what gift would you give to all mums in the world and why? I would want to add some humanness into the fantasy version of themselves that they are trying to attain to, the mishmash of all the books that we read that are incredible resources. But as you say, lack the mothering that we need to do in order to be able to access that stuff at the time. My brother and I used to do this with papers. We used to get pens and like scribble over the faces and draw moustaches on them and, you know, cross eyes and all of these, you know, just being silly. And and I think sometimes we have this fantasy version. It's so unattainable and so shiny. I'd love just to take a pen to it with each mum and just scribble all over it and add some moustaches and all of that just to bring a bit of humanness into the expectations. Sounds like a social campaign. I mean, I imagine everyone listening follows you, knows you, loves you. 
But just in case anyone's been hiding under a rock, where can they find you? Oh, thanks, Zoe. I'm on Instagram as at Anamartha and the surname is M-A-T-H-U-R. It's an Indian surname. It's not Martha. I often have to say it's like Martha, like a girl's name, but not spelled like that. Or a surname, I always have to spell it out, but that's where I am. And I've got courses and resources and books and podcasts called The Therapy Edit. Lots of different ways to get some hopefully supportive words and light bulb moments. So thank you. Mm, you're welcome. And, you know, The Therapy Edit, I love. We listen regularly to each other's podcasts, which oh, is just yours, so yeah. gorgeous. I love, I've shared you, yours I so many times. I'm same, surprised your phone same. hasn't blocked me for spam. Same. I've shared yours so many <laughs> times. You. Because we need to hear it from other people, don't we? Like, I think people might assume because we do this for a job, we remember it all the time. Absolutely not. I need your words. So thank you. And yeah, it's just always a joy. Thank you for having me. That was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you did, please do leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. It does make a massive difference. And I will see you on Monday for our moment where we share an idea, a tool, or a clip in just 10 minutes that will help you have a better week. I'll see you on Thursday for another in-depth interview with an expert. And Friday, where I chat to one of you, our community. And just a reminder, if you want to support the podcast, if you want to support me and my very, very, very small team, to keep putting out amazing content like this then please do consider subscribing it's just 3.99 a month and you'll also get the podcast ad free i will see you next time hi i'm lauren and i'm nicole and if you enjoy this show you will love our podcast self-care club every week we trial a different form of self-care and report back on the results we've tried everything from cuddle therapy setting boundaries laughter yoga and many more Two friends who rarely agree on anything. Testing out the world of self-care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self-care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self-Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.